Welcome to The Social Brew, the one and only podcast dedicated to diving deep into the world of great social media management, content, and storytelling with just a little shot of caffeine along the way. I'm your host, Luke Williams, and please do sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Now, before we get into our first segment, we'd better introduce today's guest, or should I say co-host, because this man will be joining me for the entire episode, and he is at his best when he's on the sticks, nailing the focus, and making his subject look 10 out of 10. I am, of course, talking about Nick Hancock. Nick, welcome to The Social Brew. Thank you, Lukey, and it's very easy to make the subject look 10 out of 10 when the subject's you, mate. We've got to get you in front of the camera more often. Oh, shucks. Well, there is a reason we are recording an audio show <laughs> and we are not filming this, but thank you, mate. Now, firstly, a few questions that we hope will become regulars on this podcast before diving too deep into your story. Now, we are a podcast fueled by coffee, of course, so I must ask, what is your diesel? My diesel, um, and it is pretty much petrol, is uh, a double espresso, Luke, and I'm the kind of operator where if I could, I'd plug it straight into my veins, baby. Can't function without it. Can occasionally have too much of it. Lovely. And I have been known to drink a few of these with you in the past. How many of these do you have a day? Strictly two. Otherwise, I reach terminal velocity, right? And uh, nobody wants that. So after midday, two in the can, nothing but decaf and water after that. Very, very good. And you are a well-caffeinated man. I think we've just learnt that. Um, so for the folks tuning in, what do you do for a living? What is your, your job title? I'm lucky enough to be the video content producer at Deakin University as part of their central marketing team. I'm also a freelancer, so keep the gears turning over uh, with other projects for clients and friends and family and the like. And briefly, what's been your favorite video or a particular project that you've worked on across your time? Two spring to mind. One of them is a beautiful little micro documentary that we shot in the center of Queensland. So 10 hours due west of Brisbane, which was a story with a sporting focus that was all about a local community in the middle of nowhere, the bloke who runs the local cricket team and his family. And it had a really great mental health message, which I really enjoyed. It was really vibrant. It was really hot. Uh, and I actually got to bowl during the game of cricket that we were filming on the Saturday afternoon, which was the dream, finished with tidy figures of one for six from two. Thank you very much. And still the best bowling I've done for years. The other one is a side project I'm working on with a mate. We're creating a documentary about a band that's been tearing up Melbourne band rooms for 30 odd years. The best band that you've never heard of, the best bands who never quite made it and all of their adventures as to why that is the case. It's been a lot of fun. My mate's had a child recently, so I'm uncertain if the project will ever end or when we'll next pick it up. But there's something about shooting music and a music documentary in particular that's really awesome for storytelling, but also awesome on the camera as well. Different but awesome projects to work on. And you mentioned there that you bowled a cricket ball. So the obvious question is, while you're shooting this band, have you you know picked up the sticks to have a, have a smack on the drums or strummed a guitar? No, I can't, Luke. These people have great credibility. Hence, I'm not allowed to get anywhere near them unless I'm marking them up. Right, fair enough. And I guess, you know, in the same cricket terminology, if you are working with maybe elite cricket, you might not have been able to pick up the, the prime piece of English willow anyway. But anyway, that's a story for another audience. Now, before we 
hear a little bit more about your journey and, and your amazing foray into video production, firstly, let's kick off the episode by grinding the beans. Now, it happened a little over a month ago, but Instagram has recently removed the swipe up feature often used on stories uh, to allow brands who are either verified or have 10,000 plus followers to have their followers click off platform and onto either an external website or video on YouTube, which is obviously, you know, a powerful function for, for brands to be able to do that. And its replacement is a link sticker, which will effectively be a tappable link allowing consumers to to visit an external website. So gone are the days of swiping up on an IG story, which is quite a repetitive thing to be able to do. And we know that Instagram is the engagement platform and traditionally it's been built to keep people in the feed and elsewhere. And, you know, there's limited opportunities to actually click off, you know, Instagram as a platform outside of, I guess, clicking on, you know, someone's bio or swiping up. So, I guess grinding the beans on this one, Nick. Are you, are you a lover or a hater of this change to to one of Instagram's most loved features? Well, it's interesting that you say that, Luke, because you're right. So there's two bits of rhetoric that you hear all across Instagram. It's link in bio, um, and it's swipe up if you're in a story. To be honest with you, I'm agnostic about this. Genuinely, don't think about it. Don't consider it. Um, I know it took our social media team by surprise when it first happened. But to be honest with you. The functionality to swipe up wasn't really customizable. Whereas with this link sticker, it's a little bit more customizable. You can put it anywhere. It'll show the domain. You can change it from blue to transparent or there or thereabouts. I think it actually probably fits in more with the LinkedIn stories aesthetic, I suppose. As a marketer, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, agreed. I don't think it will cause too much conflict with creators in our position. I think you, you referenced it there, you know, lightly that the, these tappable links have the capacity to be, I guess, a little bit more conspicuous. You know, you can shrink it, you can enlarge it, um, you can make it more accessible. So, you know, it, it's quite striking, you know, if you want to blow it up on a, on a particular story. The one thing that does concern me is that there is an additional step when clicking on it, you know, as I was touching on before, that you, you can swipe up on a story, you know, traditionally, whereas this, you have to tap the link and then a secondary kind of button comes up that says visit link. So it does make that user journey, I guess, a little bit more complex, albeit, you know, one additional click. But ultimately, yeah, I don't think this one will, will affect people too much. Mostly cosmetic, you'd say, right? Correct. Correct. And in a statement, you know, reading through what, you know, Instagram's purpose and, and the way they describe making this change was that you know they wanted to streamline stories on the platform make it more aligned to the features that they already had stickers are something that they've, they've been so big on and you know they've also suggested that you know it should improve engagement for brands but we'll have to wait to see you know proof in the pudding i think by the end of the year we'll probably have a, a good indication of whether they revisit you know the swipe up um if this one doesn't work so let's have a coffee shall we nico Now, Nico, I'm really excited to get into this chat and learn a little bit more about you, the things that I don't already know. Now, you've got your double espresso. I've got my magic. So can you start off by telling us where did your journey behind the lens start and was it something that you'd always had your, your sights set on? To be honest with you, Luke, I didn't really have an end game for where I wanted to be in the industry. I know that I knew that I wanted to work in it but I wasn't certain at what capacity. So I more or less just went in headfirst. At university, I was never the bloke who was shooting or editing. I was typically a producer or a sound recorder, pretty much just doing what needed to be done. 
And having that attitude and starting off in weddings and just being keen to be involved actually led to me getting more and more responsibility over time, leading me to become, you know, a producer, shooter and editor of projects. Growing up, was video something that, you know, you did as a kid or a teenager or was it something, you know, what age did you first pick up a camera or some kind of video recording device and, you know, press record? So in terms of my little origins, it's not exactly a particularly compelling story, but my uncle made home videos for our extended family when we were growing up in the 1990s. And I used to love watching them back time and again and realizing that he'd shot this with a camcorder and he'd edited it, you know, back in the day when it was VHS tape and very difficult to do so. And so when my dad invested in a camcorder in the noughties, when I was starting to go to high school, man, I made a lot of videos all sorts of stuff that I'm glad has since disappeared into some dead hard drives, into the ether, is no longer on YouTube like it is these days for everyone to be able to refer to over time. Some stuff that was fun, helped me develop skills, helped me understand how cameras and editing worked, but was also really average and corny and silly and strange. So that's, I guess, my origin. Yeah, awesome. And you know, you've, you've already said that you've had, you know, Taster's life as a freelancer and also working across various organizations. I guess, what are some of the better memories you've had from your time as a video producer? To be honest, the thing that has probably been most beneficial to me overall in terms of being a video producer is being plugged into different organizations. It's one of those rare jobs, possibly like being an accountant, maybe, where the nature of your work means that you're working with everyone under the sun if that's what you choose to do. And by that, I mean, I've worked with massive multinational corporations. I've worked with big building businesses. I've worked with sole traders. I've worked for charity clients. I've worked in live sport and TV and, you know, gone from everywhere from the streets of Alice Springs through to the High Court Library, right? So it's a really varied existence being a video producer. And it's a great way to learn from different people in a vast different range of fields about what makes them tick, how they work efficiently, and and what gives them a drive. And I really appreciate that most of all. And I guess with those various experiences and visiting different parts of, you know, our wonderful country, but also the world, have you ever had like a, I guess, a pinch yourself moment that comes to mind? Actually, I've got a really, I've got one for you that sounds kind of mundane on the surface, but was really pivotal for me. I was shooting media training, lots of media training. And for this one particular day, I was actually flown up to Sydney to film some media training with someone who was the CIO at a major uh, telecommunications authority in Australia. And firstly, not only was he amazing to work with, he was also highly intelligent. And spending eight hours with him meant I got to pick his brain on a few things and see how he would work through questions in a media training environment and see what made him tick. And that was really fascinating for me to have an insight that very few people outside of his inner sanctum would have. Yeah, awesome. And when you say media training, so you were there filming him as he was being trained. So you were kind of, I guess, the prop cameraman, but you you were doing your job at the same time. Yeah, video production has gears and no two gigs are the same. For instance, most of the time you're just shooting stuff, editing and delivering it. Whereas in this case, I was there as a live camera operator 
shooting this person's responses to the media training and then immediately playing them back so that he could see how he behaved in front of the camera um, and pick up on any mannerisms and work out what he could do better to consistently and authoritatively deliver the message that he was supposed to deliver. Yeah, that's awesome. That's an awesome experience. I haven't heard of that too much. So it's really good to get an insight into, I guess, you know, what different CEOs and I presume every, you know, professional athlete does as well. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, in current day, you are in your element at Deakin University now. You also spent three years at the University of Melbourne. What is it about working in higher ed that you enjoy so much? When I was working for my first job at Cider Weddings, my first corporate video job, I was lucky enough to shoot content for a range of universities for um, a range of different clients. And every time I kind of dipped my toe into that world, whether it be research, student experience, spotlights on the facilities and the faculties themselves, there was like a real kind of buzz. There was a real sense of excitement, not only on behalf of you know the students who were there, but the lecturers, the researchers, people doing cutting edge stuff or people developing new skills. It was a buzz that I really enjoyed and it, it was great to be part of Uni Melbourne. It's the same at Deakin. And you yourself were... Um, you know, you studied film and digital media at Deakin, from what I can tell from a quick stalk on LinkedIn. Um, what's it like working at the university where you were once a student yourself? Well, it was, it's great for banter, Luke, because when I started, we'd actually been plunged into our first COVID lockdown in 2020. And as I was meeting all the faculties and business units and being introduced, this is the new central marketing guy who started during lockdown. I bought my bachelor's degree to those meetings and actually showed them down the webcam to say, hey, listen, I was a Deakin student, had the best time for three years. It changed my life. It's great to be back. Are there any particular lecturers or people still around maybe that when you were studying? I have reconnected with some of my old film and digital media lecturers. And let me tell you, they are the best. They haven't changed. Um, And that kind of relationship has been really mutually beneficial because if I need a student for something, I know I can hit them up. And they always apply us the best students, which is fantastic. In your particular role, you're obviously working for the organisation and, and you would have some really defined KPIs, but do you, do you have students that tap you on the shoulder for advice or you know is that a role that your team ever plays? I've been lucky enough that some of the students that I've worked with, Luke, they have skills that I feel I can help them develop over time. I encourage students who I've worked with who are either studying film and digital media or they're a creative arts student who are working in After Effects, or just any outstanding student talent to contact me if I can help them out in any way, if they think that there's something that I can connect them with or offer advice on, that is an open door. And let me tell you, some of the stuff that they're doing, both in the degree that I studied and in the wider creative arts faculty in in particular, blows me away that there are undergrad students doing this kind of stuff, genuine art, genuine talent, amazing use of the available machines and technology. What is it about that do you think that develops these kids so quickly? Is it that they've picked up the tools really early in their life, maybe as a teenager, or is it just that they're so tuned into their degree and, and are really aspiring to you know, make something of themselves? Luke, I think people's video literacy is increasing at a rapid rate with the sheer amount of video media that's available online, on TVs, on demand whenever they want it, right? And the mindset of the students that I've worked with from that particular field, they actually don't see conventional barriers. They just have seen stuff that they like. 
that they want to emulate. So they get out there and they learn After Effects or they learn Illustrator or they rent cameras. It's that kind of attitude that I feel is on steroids at the moment in terms of video. And some of the stuff that they're making is fantastic, which has been great to see. But it's that kind of attitude that they've seen stuff that they like, they want to make stuff that they're proud of, and they just chase that really aggressively. That's awesome. That's an awesome insight. And I do want to switch gears a little bit now and um, ask a little bit about your time behind the lens. And the first one that kind of comes to mind is you, you referenced before that you're working on a documentary. I know you've been involved in documentaries in the past. What is it that differs from a production point of view around shooting a documentary as opposed to, say, a, a brand TVC or just a short two-minute video for social media? Well, it's what differs, but what kind of stays the same too, Lukey. Like, at the end of the day, the way that you structure a documentary, there's a lot of it that you have to discover then and there. You can do research, but by and large, documentaries, there's always stuff that unfolds out of sequence or surprises you, or maybe the story's not quite what you thought it was. Maybe it's better, right? Or maybe you've got to pivot. But the key thing is to make sure that doesn't matter if you're doing a TVC, doesn't matter if you're doing a documentary, you've got to get your planning right. If you get your planning right in the scaffolds of what you're trying to create, then you're going to have a successful product. The difference between documentaries and the other two is that you discover more as you actually sit down and interview people. Yeah, it makes sense. And I, I, I know it's hard to kind of skim over a production process of a documentary in a minute, <laughs> but when you, I guess, get to that post-production phase and start editing is it something that you're you're clipping together particular sequences um the first 20 minutes or is it shorter packages how, how do you piece it all together at the end yeah it kind of develops over time and you've got a couple of different types of documentaries you've got the ones that have quite a constrained production time and need to be delivered reasonably quickly and then you've got some of the meteor docos that you can take a little bit more time with to really build that story and understand it and analyze it what happens over time is you build your initial scaffold in, in pre-production and you kind of go, okay, so here's the vague narrative arc that we're trying to capture. Here are the people and the objects and the places that we think will help us tell that story that we want to tell. And then over time, you assemble it in the original kind of arc. And then over time, things adjust and things change and you realize you're missing some bits or maybe there's a bit that is actually more important to the story than originally anticipated or maybe there's a breakout character god knows the breakout character happened a lot for us um in my previous job where we just be like okay no the story's actually this person they've got the energy they've got the life they've got the amazing story to tell so you try and build the story in pre-production in a way that makes you enabled to tell it and then in post-production and even production to a certain extent you're just constantly pivoting finessing little bits doing cuts like on the day just to make sure that you've got the content that you need just before the pandemic hit kangaroo island was devastated by you know some really horrific bushfires back in early 2020 and you had the chance to visit the ruins alongside neil kearney and produced a, a really powerful five minute package that that ran on all kinds of platforms including um on tv can you talk us through what that experience was like that was actually a deeply personal one for me luke I'd been on holiday to Kangaroo Island in 2019 with my wife and we had had a spectacular time driving from east to west and vice versa and doing stuff like spelunking in caves and meeting the local people, having heaps of organic food and great food and to fly into it on the day that we did 
and to see that it was still on fire and there were no trees and it just felt hot even in the plane and then stepping off the plane onto the tarmac I still don't think any condition on earth that I will be in for the rest of my life will compete with Kangaroo Island that day and the gig was put together by my previous boss and my mentor Joel Bunkle who runs marketable video production and now Greenpoint Productions and he told me look we're doing this with CA as a partnership and Neil um, get in there there's a doco story to tell it has to be compelling but I don't think there'll be any issues with with that being the case and it was interesting because not only was it high emotion for the entire day and we were in and out in a day I think we had about six hours there to shoot all the content that we could and conduct the interviews and get the overlay not only was it at an emotional high it was at an environmental high too because the iron was still on fire we arrived to our penultimate location and we thought that we might have to actually scramble back to the airport and get out of there because there were fires and the wind was blowing them towards where we were it was so hot the camera was pretty much constantly overheating and i had nowhere to charge batteries and worst of all the sunlight was pinging off the dirt and the dust making it incredibly glary and i couldn't see my external monitor for a lot of the day so in terms of an extreme for a shoot that's as far as i've gone it was hotter than central queensland hotter than central wa hotter than alice springs and i wish the people of kangaroo island the best but it was very much like being in another world yeah it's amazing to to hear you speak of that and you know we obviously see the end result of you know a five minute video but you know, it was, it was a, I'm guessing a 12 to 14 hour experience for you guys, but also having that respect and balance of the people you were, you were interviewing and talking to who, um, I remember, was it one of the, the, the guys that you interviewed that was kind of living out of his caravan? Um, Correct. And yeah. the, the captain of the cricket club. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how receptive were, I guess, the locals when, you know, you're, you're walking around with the camera trying to, to document, you know, such a, such a sad time. I'm not quite sure what Neil's approach on the shoot was. Mine was to acknowledge it. I'm a big fan of leaning into the weirdness, right? And I find that, not that you want to be thinking about life this way, but if you do need to disarm somebody, you just acknowledge, hey, this is weird. This is going to be uncomfortable. This is strange. Um, and everyone there was so raw, as raw as the earth, really. So by acknowledging that the situation was tough, kind of brought people on side and and help them lower their defenses because it was a highly stressful environment for them. They'd lost their livelihoods, their road infrastructure. They'd, they'd lost their, you know, homes in some cases. People were living out of the sporting ovals that we were shooting at. And so managing that and trying to not offer so much empathy because that can come across as kind of condescending, but acknowledging the pain and the weirdness was the only way that I could kind of get through to people. Hmm. And it's, it's such a tough one, right? Because, you know, in, you know, after the fact, you know, I knew Cricket Australia ran um, the big appeal, which raised, I think it was in excess of, of six or $7 million in the end, which would go to, to bushfire relief. And, you know, at times, you know, we all know that in the marketing space, you need these stories, these real stories to actually generate, you know, and, and, and create a movement of people donating. Yeah. It's, huge role that you know i guess we can play in terms of you know bringing those stories to 
to the president and, you know, showing people, you know, who are in areas where the bushfires aren't, um, that, hey, here's what's happening. 100%. Yeah. And it was nice to contribute to that in even the smallest way. But really, the work that CA did was just extraordinary. Across your time, are there any, you know, we spent a bit of time on Kangaroo Island there, but has that kind of reignited any other projects across your time that you might be, I guess, particularly proud of? Projects, there's probably too many for me to talk about now, but I think above all, it's those kind of opportunities to contribute to a cause that is charitable um, or a cause that aligns with, with my values, right? And the beauty of being a videographer and working with a huge range of clients is that I do have, I have had in the past opportunities to work in the inclusion space and, you know, the multicultural space, the indigenous space, oh man, the charitable space. And that's been fantastic because I think in any field, I know what you, you try and make this happen as well, Luke, and you do a really great job, but working on stuff that you're passionate about is so important. So proud, yes, of all the projects I've worked on, but specifically the ones that play into that inclusion, all abilities or charitable spaces. Couldn't agree more that, you know, working on something that you're particularly passionate about or has a personal kind of, you know, strikes a personal core with you, you know, makes waking up and doing your job pretty easy every day, doesn't it? So yeah, some really good advice for, I guess, people looking to, to start their career. Now, in 2021, I guess a big part of a video producer's role is creating nifty packages for social media. So tell us, particularly for the social media crowd out there, when briefed or starting a project that will primarily see its success on social, what process do you take? It's a good question, Luke, and you actually have a really good handle on this from the work that you do. So in terms of how to proceed, I like to start with the audience, establish exactly who you're talking to. The people that you want to connect with kind of informs how you're going to communicate. And a lot of large organizations have really wide audiences, for instance. But for some smaller organizations, those audiences are smaller. So you need to be very specific with the way that you communicate in the video content. And then consider what's the action? What are you actually trying to get people to do? Are we trying to drive people to click a link? Are we trying to get them to sign up to something? Or are we just executing a brand building initiative? All of those decisions impact the way that you actually create the video content. And lastly, this is really technical and literal as well, but what are the different distribution platforms? Because that can help not only, you know, the videographer or the editor or the director understand the aspect ratios. So, you know, one to one or four by five for feed or um, 16 by nine for YouTube or 916 for stories, right? But it can also help them understand how they need to communicate the story in the video or the rhythm of the edit or the kind of visual style that, that platform needs. Because if you're creating something for TikTok versus Insta stories versus LinkedIn versus YouTube or Vimeo, you're actually creating a different product. It doesn't matter if the video concept's the same, the way that it's put together and shot is different fundamentally. And the way that you communicate with those audiences is different fundamentally. So considering those three things, who's the audience, what's the action, where is it going to be? Yeah, absolutely. And do you in your position as, I guess, a, you know, a video producer, your role is to produce videos, but do you feel like, you know, you personally need to have your finger on the pulse of what the particular social platforms are doing and what their purpose is? 
yeah, I think that's something that you build up over time organically, the more content that you produce and the more content that you consume. You get a better understand for the rhythm and the literacy of each different platform. And it helps you understand how you're gonna capture what you need to capture to tell a story or sell a product or drive an action efficiently across those different platforms. And creating videos in the pandemic, you know, like many of us, you know, the pandemic has changed the way we work and operate. So from a production perspective, how does a video producer produce videos when you're so limited in access to, I guess, specific locations and also really key talent that you might want to use? Yeah, with with great difficulty, to be honest, Lukey. Um, and we need to address this off the top. You and I live in Melbourne. For many years, the world's most livable city, but currently the world's most locked down. And like my cricket batting average, you don't actually want that statistic, right? 2020, the whole world was going through coronavirus lockdowns. And what I perceive is that audiences had a fundamental understanding about lockdown and about the types of content that organisations could create. There was a different aesthetic in 2020. People were doing Zoom recordings or selfie recordings on the phone or they were doing stuff with stock imagery or pre-existing video, all that sort of stuff under the umbrella that, hey, the audience knows that we're all compromised for production at the moment. To be honest with you, the most recent Melbourne lockdown has been much tougher for that. And by and large, we have tried as much as possible to steer away from Zoom recordings or selfie records or anything that looks 2020-ish. Because to be honest with you, I perceive that the audiences who were okay with that content last year in the middle of a global pandemic have a wariness for it now or a weariness of it. And it looks very dated, which was okay last year during the worldwide shutdown. But now that it's just Melbourne and a couple of other cities, it really does date very quickly. So, you know, we've had some success and some failures creating video content in that kind of world. But, you know, I've exhausted every option trying to find ways around it. So for me, the opportunity during lockdown was to drastically improve my After Effects skills, which has been fantastic. I have a mate at work who's more or less mentored me on that and has driven me to learn new things and try new things and really get my head around After Effects in a way that I may never have gotten to without lockdown. And the other one is Deacon has certain videos that it needs produced. And we'd scripted them before lockdown started and we produced them during lockdown. And so what I did as a creative solution was I actually set up my house as a green screen studio. And for one of the videos, I'm in it presenting. For the other video, my wife's in it presenting as a massive favor to me. And I got massive satisfaction because we produced the first video early into the most recent lockdown and the central marketing team were happy with it. And it was only when I posted a behind the scenes video where I'm in my living room in front of this green screen with the lights and the shotgun mic all set up that people actually twigged that, hey, it was a green screen video. And it's the same with the most recent one. If I didn't show them photos of my wife, Rachel, in front of this green screen, they would have assumed that we somehow got on campus and started shooting, which was great. The power of a green screen uh, is incredible. And thank you for that really long answer that was that was that was really insightful but um you know you you watch a, a video and uh, or a movie and a lot of people at the moment are watching ted lasso i don't know if you've caught it nico on apple tv but i was amazed to read that a lot of the scenes where they were actually playing soccer on the pitch playing games of you know competitive soccer which which looked like they were scoring goals and making tackles and getting red cards was all shot purely 
on the most part by green screen. So the power of green screen is just incredible um, and really difficult to pick up as, you know, someone watching it. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen the behind the scenes from Squid Game, but some of the sets that they've built, which they then populated with people or empty vistas or and the work that the Mandalorian's doing in the centre of what they call the volume, which is a 360-degree recording studio, has fundamentally changed how what is possible in a studio environment. So, look, I'm not a massive advocate of green screen. I use it as um, a desperation play, but, man, there's some incredible stuff being done around the world as technology continues to increase. Yeah, and you go from, I guess, the green screen to what you were touching on before around accessibility through Zoom and um, people suggesting that you can just pick up your iPhone and shoot a video. And I agree with you in the sense that I feel like it's very easy for, for maybe a video novice or you know not a content professional to say, hey, let's just do a video on this because it's easy and we can record two people having a conversation on Zoom. But my honest feeling is that now that kind of element of content is wearing out and people are a little bit sick of it. It's a little bit stale and, you know, they're associating it with 2020, uh, which clearly for many of us was a was a pretty horrific experience. So I, I do hope that we do see a boom of, you know, getting videographers back doing what they do best because there's nothing like a Chris video that, you know, can tell a story. I absolutely agree. What advice, I guess, would you give to say, say there's a videographer tuned in right now, a young, a young videographer, maybe a student at Deakin, someone who's just cutting their teeth and wanting to make um, this talent of theirs a profession. What would be, I guess, the one bit of advice that you would give them? I've got a couple, which I'll whiz through, Lukey, because this is my approach. This is exactly what I did. So you got to understand that every industry is a people industry, right? Including the creative industry. So you don't need to be friends with everyone but mutual respect is really important in any field, especially in videography, because it's a small field. You have to keep creating, okay? So it doesn't matter if you're an editor, a producer, a videographer, you have to be tinkering, trying new things, doing stuff with little to no budget if you're starting out, right? And meeting people, that's really important. Two really specific bits of advice is if you're shooting, do the prep the night before, don't get sucked in to leaving it until the morning of. Keep your equipment tidy, or at the very least in the same location so that you aren't looking around for stuff all the time and build that literacy of where your equipment lives and always be early. I don't want to be prescriptive here because different people have different ideas for how early is too early, but allow yourself enough time to get to where you need to be to set up and to be comfortable because the client will pick up on those vibes as well. Yeah, that's awesome advice. Uh, what was it saying? An old cricket coach said to me was that if you're 10 minutes early, you're 15 minutes late. And I know, <laughs> I remember when he first said that, there were a few kind of minds scrambling, trying to work out how many minutes early they had to be. But it, the point was like, don't rock up five minutes late, be there early and, and you know, and be prepared for the job. So that's a, that's a really good insight. And knowing you personally on a shoot, you are the kind of person who lights up a room when you're in it. You're very professional. And I know there's so much for you to control when you're shooting things like audio, focus, lighting, not to mention, I guess, if you're you're the single man there, keeping you know your talent happy and motivated and, and ready to answer the question you're about to ask them. So what does go through your mind when you're on a, on a really important shoot? How do, how do you stay calm personally? Well, you might as well call me Harry Houdini because that's an illusion um, that I think I've built up because of how over-caffeinated I constantly am. Um, but thanks to the nice words, they do actually mean a lot. I guess when you're talking about being a one-man band, which I have often been on productions in the past, 
and doing the focus, audio, lighting, you know, managing the talent. I try and set myself up so that that is what I'm focusing on at all times and I'm constantly moving. So I dislike going on a shoot and being stagnant behind the camera or zoning off as we're recording audio, um, maybe letting the focus lapse, all that sort of stuff. I want to be constantly doing stuff. And if there's downtime in between interviewees, what batteries can I charge? What media can I ingest? What can I do to make sure that I am proactive and active and switched on? Because it's really important. And part of that, I guess, confidence on a shoot comes down to the equipment that people choose to use. So for instance, being me, I have a very specific pre-production workflow, production workflow and post-production workflow, right? I've built up a very specific set of gear that works for me. And that's really important because on any shoot, your gear is an extension of yourself. Having more expensive cameras, lighting, lenses, all that sort of stuff doesn't mean the content that you make will necessarily be any better. You need to make sure that what you're working with works for you. And I don't care what it is, if it's personal to you and if it works, then you can be confident that you're going to deliver a good product. And that's a, a really good segue there. You're talking about gear and for a videographer, gear can be quite complex. And I was speaking to a very close friend of mine the other day who I said, supposedly, if I was going to interview a videographer on a podcast that I might be hosting, what would you want to hear from them? And his suggestion was that he'd really like to know how how does a video producer or someone that you know really needs really good tools to, to help you do your job, how do you stay on top of good equipment, updates, you know, you kind of might purchase a new camera and then the next version of that comes out for an additional few thousand dollars. So what is it about being comfortable with the gear you're using that's that's so important? You have to develop your own style. A lot of people watch, you know, the big name videographers doing their product breakdowns and talking about how they shoot, but really you have to make it customized to you. That's the most important thing. You have to be comfortable with the way that you work because that kind of energy can extend to everyone on the shoot. If you're comfortable with how you're working, you're going to bring everyone's comfort levels up, which is exactly what you want to do. Are you a person that stays on top of new product releases and follows particular brands that are, are releasing equipment or is it kind of a, you know, I'll, I'll stick with this equipment for five or so years and then have a look later? Yeah, that's my philosophy, Luke. I don't buy into the idea that you need to be constantly upgrading. Um, I just want to try and master what I've been using. And that's my own personal philosophy. Some people will take it or leave it. Some people are in the position to rent, Luke. So if you're part of a larger video production company, you can actually rent gear, which allows you to much more organically stay up to date right on the cutting edge. Whereas for me as a solo operator slash someone who's employed by Deacon, I need to build a kit that works for me. And that's often over the long to medium term. No, that makes really good sense. Now, I guess to finish off, it's been an amazing chat. And one thing that I'm really keen to get your thoughts on, what right now do you see as, I guess, an emerging trend in the video space? What do, what do budding videographers need to stay on top of right now on, you know, we're recording this on Friday, the 15th of October, 2021. What is it right now that's emerging in the video space? Yeah, I've actually got a corker for you, Lukey. That is serendipitous, right? I uh, received an email from a company called Atomus today, right? Literally, as you say, Friday, the 15th of October. And what the product was is a very specific add-on for an external recorder that I have. It's called the Atomex Cast, 
and it plugs into a Ninja V, which is the external recorder, which I use to capture, you know, high quality 4K footage. Uh, it, great external screen. But what this little add-on does is you plug it in and it's got four HDMI ins, right? And uh, a USB-C out, which can go into a computer or a live streaming device. And it's also got four buttons on it. And so what you can do is you can bring in four sources of vision, could be say two cameras, uh, one gaming device, and maybe a PC monitor that's got a hold screen, and you can cut between them live and going USB-C out, you can actually stream it live. If you plugged it into say a MacBook or a PC, it would pop up as another webcam in your Zoom or MS Teams or whatever. And so what I've just taken a lot of verbal diarrhea to say is live streaming is gonna continue to become not necessarily BAU, but a bigger part of video production. And part of what's pushing it is Twitch and YouTube Live and the rest of it. But the technology is also getting more accessible. The internet connections in Australia are getting more accessible. And COVID lockdown forced a lot of people to do live streaming. So now with something like the Atom X Cast, you can do that quickly and easily with buttons and live stream something that looks like a professional broadcast production, essentially. And, you know, all these social platforms, I know even TikTok, for example, is you know, got a got a live element to it where where users can do that. So um, it's a really good point, and I think you can definitely notice with streaming when you know there are there are there are a lot of people out there that are quite sharp with the way in which they stream, and it's not always just an iPhone direct to Facebook or direct to Instagram. They might have a really high quality camera connected to their you know particular setup that's kind of shooting through, and you kind of see that a lot on YouTube and. And Twitch is a really good point too. So, no, thank you for that insight. And thank you so much for sharing your, I guess, a bit about your journey. Now, you are going to stick around, aren't you, for the French press? If you'll still have me, 100%. Now, the French press is an opportunity for us to shine a light on some of the great stuff happening across social media by both the big and the little guys. Now, given we have you on this week, Nico, I thought we'd start off by looking at some exceptional, I guess, video production. So what have you got for us? Well, I went social focus for this, Luke. I'm going to shine a light on Old El Paso's slam dunk mess-free challenge. I like this because the social brew is all about online marketing. And this is a digital campaign, right, that Old El Paso's running. They've got a brand new product called a tortilla pocket, which actually has like a, a bottom to it. So, you know, you're eating your Mexican tortillas and everything normally slides out the bottom or the bottom breaks and it goes everywhere. Yet yeah, these ones will actually keep everything inside. And so what Old El Paso decided to do last year was create a social first campaign starring Nick Kyrgios where he was playing tennis um, and, hit, and hitting a tweener right in between his leg whilst he's holding one of these Old El Paso tortillas just to say hashtag mess free, right? And um, get people involved and build a product recognition for the social media audience. So they've doubled down and they decided to go one step further this year and they've got Kyrgios encouraging other sports people to have a crack at this year's slam dunk, hashtag mess free challenge, where they actually slam dunk a basketball into a ring whilst holding one of the tortillas and it doesn't spill. And so what they do is they contact influencers, people with large followings, and they try and get them involved. So celebrities, sports people, people of note, right? And the campaign is good for a number of reasons in that it's, you know, reasonably well produced. It's uh, a simple hashtag for a novel new product. It's got celebrity involvement. 
And it also has that charitable hook as well in that the people who've been running the campaign have actually been making contributions to Food Bank Australia based on people's involvement, you know, with the hashtag and building the brand's awareness. So in terms of a social media campaign, it's a good all-rounder, which I thought you uh, might like the spotlight shun on. Yeah, it's a really good pickup and one that I hadn't actually seen until you put it on my radar. And I really like it in the sense that, you know, it is... It's for a brand. There's no doubt that it's, you know, trying to create awareness of this awesome new product that they have, but it's got a really good feel-good component too around that charitable aspect and Food Bank, I'm sure, is something that we can all get around and, and really celebrate. I feel like it's really different too in the sense that it's shot with a really high production value and it seems like there is a strong focus on using these kind of influencer-style, you know, athletes um, that are playing in sports that have quite high large movement and you know unusual things like slam dunking or you know hitting a serve and you know you can keep you know your rap mess free so yeah it, it was really unique and different and, and not sure of I guess the user generated component I don't think it will be as successful as an ice bucket challenge or something that's purely shot you know on iPhones and whatever else but ultimately I feel like it drives a really important message so good pickup thanks for that Nico well, Nico, thank you so much for joining us here today on The Social Brew. It's been so awesome to have you along. And I, for one, have learned so much around video production and I guess the things that go with, you know, being a video producer on the day-to-day. And I'm sure our audience have, have learned a lot too. So thank you so much. You are on LinkedIn. So if anyone wants to connect with you, I will be encouraging them to do so. But yeah, thank you so much, mate. It's been awesome to have a chat. Yep, it's my pleasure, Luke. And I look forward to working with you again in the future and having a hit of indoor cricket. Go the up-downs. <laughs>